0: to a bit of fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This is the last week of season seven. The last two summer blockbusters we'll be exploring and we get a bit of everything. Some mild romance, a vengeful daughter, two psychotic masked figures, an alien invasion, and Groundhog's Day. Not a bad way to end the season. Today's episode, we're taking a not-so-deep dive into our second Christopher Nolan film and his final installment of the Batman franchise, The Dark Knight Rises. This is another one I remember seeing in the theaters, I'm assuming, opening weekend, if not the midnight showing, when things for sure. Tom Hardy is excellent at creating a tense, uncomfortable mood in a movie. He's, He's a presence, chaotic, unpredictable, and you can't take your eyes off of him. But in The Dark Knight Rises, it's his his voice, which is distinct anyway. When you hear that voice, you're like, oh, that's Tom Hardy. But it's isolated in the mask he's wearing. And so it just makes it even more sinister. I mean, I remember it making the hair on my arm stand up, and I I know I had that feeling. There was one scene where he blows up a football field in the middle of Gotham when I The strong urge to climb under the seats and hide. I mean, I really remember thinking that I want to get away from this voice. I don't want to hear this voice anymore. And I thought about like getting under the seat in the theater, which would be disgusting. That was the only thing really stopping me just knowing how disgusting those floors are. But on to the movie itself. As mentioned, this is a Christopher Nolan movie and is third in the Batman franchise. I was reading an article on Looper.com. It was titled The Untold Truth of the Dark Knight Trilogy by Chris Snellgrove and Micheline Martin. I like the name Micheline, that's a pretty name where they detailed that Nolan was inspired by Richard Donner's 1978 film Superman. Uh, That he appreciated that it was Superman's origin story. He considered Batman begins to be really the 1978 Batman set in contemporary times, a familiar setting, but with the opportunity to explore the origin story of such an extraordinary figure, which I thought was kind of interesting. And like the predecessors in this particular series, the screenplay was written by Nolan and his brother Jonathan. And then David S. Goyer gets credited for the story. So I have this dream that one day I'll get to sit down with a director, a producer, and a screenwriter to just chat, because I have a lot of questions about the trade itself. For instance, did Nolan hire Goyer to create the story? I mean, according to the Googles, specifically nofilmschool.com, I don't know if it's a legit site or not. I was just Googling. Story is more or less what it sounds like. The plot, the characters, the setting, and tone. How does that cooperation work? Did Goyer write up a general plot and then Nolan crafted it into a screenplay? But then I find it hard to believe that Nolan didn't have a vision in his head the whole time. I mean, I'm fascinated by the entire process. I have no real desire to make my own film, but I'd love to shadow a crew for the entirety of a shoot. Watch the interactions between the director and the producer, see how much freedom the head of photography and cinematographers have in their craft or if they're kind of beholden to the director's desires or what happens when you have like a huge star carrying a movie like say Tom Cruise in his newest Top Gun Maverick a project that I'm sure he was involved in from the very very beginning how much does the director really get to do? Or how much sway in that example did Cruz have on the final product? I mean, I know he was a producer of the film. So how much sway does a producer actually have? And then you have people editing the film. But is the director there the whole time during the editing? Or do they give just kind of directions for that? And how well would one of these actors take direction if they are kind of carrying the film and have such sway when it comes to money And that? Would they be like, nope, I'm not doing that? I have a lot of questions just about the art form itself, and I think that would be a cool podcast. A complete amateur who is just really and genuinely curious, sitting down with like Steven Spielberg with a list of questions. Seriously, I have a list of at least 50 questions I would love to ask him. But I got off topic. The Dark Knight Rises. The movie came out on July 20th, 2012. Can't believe it's been 10 years. That's kind of crazy. And the cast included almost everyone from Inception. So we have Tom Hardy, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marion Cotillard, Michael Caine. But we also get Christian Bale, Anne Hathaway, Gary Oldman, Morgan Freeman, and Matthew Modine. Oh, and Ben Mendelsohn. I'm actually kind of a fan of Mendelsohn, despite the fact that he's usually a jerk. I mean, he, he plays an excellent villain. Another guy with a very distinct accent and voice. When you hear him, you typically know who it is. So what else came out in the summer of 2012? Uh, not, not great movies, really. You have Snow White and the Huntsman. Horrible. Rock of Ages. Ah, uh, mediocre. I mean, it was fine. Brave, a Pixar movie I loved, but isn't really a fan favorite. Thinking that maybe season nine will be Pixar movies. I don't know. We'll see. Or or Studio Ghibli. I haven't decided. I might have to do a poll online and get your thoughts. Uh, Magic Mike also came out. Ted and the Amazing Spider Man. I mean, it wasn't wasn't really a great summer of movies. The Dark Knight Rises had an estimated budget of $250 million. I can't even begin to imagine being in charge of that much money. That seems terrifying to me. It made almost $161 million in its opening weekend, which is a crazy amount, went on to make nearly $450 million domestically and over $1 billion worldwide. Even with that, it was only the third highest grossing film of the year behind The Avengers and Skyfall. The list of top 10 highest-grossing films of 2012 is actually a little depressing. All sequels or IP that started in a different medium, like The Hunger Games, started out as a book. Nothing unexpected and leaving zero room, really, for original screenplays. I listen to this wonderful podcast called The Popcast, and they talk a lot about that, that if we want original films, if we want original screenplays, that we have to go to the theater to actually go watch those, support those films, and I'm starting... To want to do that more and more and more because I'm getting kind of sick of the Avengers and all of that. I mean, some of the movies are fun, but, you know, they've had their place. It's time for something new and exciting and some new voices to come in to the conversation. I would love to see that happen. As for the movie summary, I realized during my rewatch that it had been a while since I sat down and watched the movies all the way through. I've hopped into The Dark Knight from time to time because Heath Ledger was just mesmerizing as the Joker, and then back to The Dark Knight Rises, but never really all of them consecutively. So I had to actually get on Wikipedia to fill in my confusion. (laughs) I was trying to think through this and really follow what was going on. I was like, I do not remember what's happening. So just in case you're not familiar, here's a bit of a context for movie number three. So in the first one, Batman Begins, it focuses on the origin story of Bruce Wayne, an angry young man who is bitter uh, that he didn't get the opportunity to avenge his parents' death in Gotham. So a a thug beat him to it. He leaves town and travels the world moving in and out of kind of the wrong circles until he meets this guy named Henry Ducard, a man that Recruits him into the League of Shadows, led by Ra's al Ghul. Turns out the League wants to destroy Gotham, believing the city is beyond saving. And Bruce becomes Batman to stop him, a symbol for the people to stand up and fight. Turns out Ducard is actually Ra's al Ghul. Wayne Manor gets burned down, Ra's is killed, and Batman starts to look for a criminal who leaves Joker playing cards behind at his crime scenes. Which leads us to the Dark Knight. So criminals by this point are still running rampant in the city. So Batman, Police Lieutenant Jim Gordon, and District Attorney Harvey Dent decide to team up and try to eliminate Gotham's organized crime situation. The new baddie, the Joker, who interrupts a meeting of the Mafia crime bosses and offers to kill the vigilante, kill Batman for half of the cash they're hiding in Hong Kong. The Joker doesn't really want to kill the Batman, though. He's too entertained by his antics. Instead, he really kind of wants to test him. So he kidnaps his childhood friend and supposed lady love. We don't have time to get into that. One, they change actresses. Two, there's just no chemistry with either actress and no real belief that these two actually are in love with each other and um so the lady love and dent are both kidnapped hiding them in two separate locations both strapped to explosives batman rushes to save rachel the lady love only to find out that the joker had switched the locations and he ends up saving dent instead dent ends up becoming a bad dude but that's for a later rewatch The point is that the Joker decides to up the ante and test the citizens of Gotham now. His overall goal is to prove to the citizens that they're more like him than they realize and that even Batman can be corrupted. Wayne sort of is, but citizens are not, and the Joker is killed. Which brings us back to the movie we're actually talking about, The Dark Knight Rises. So Wayne has left Batman behind, convinced that the city is better off without him. He crossed some lines trying to stop the Joker and thinks it's best if law and order is controlled by the authorities, as it should be. But the League of Shadows is back, led by a masked terrorist known as Bane, who claims to want to fulfill Ra's al Ghul's mission to destroy Gotham. He lays siege to the city, literally cutting off all escape routes, and starts to use his own form of... uh, corrupted justice I guess to reinvigorate organized crime in the city. Wayne then brings back man out of retirement and with the help of a master cat burglar and a moral and upright cop starts to fight back. Turns out Bane isn't really the villain. That spot is held for the vengeful daughter of the late Raza al Ghul, Talia al Ghul, who as a child was held captive in this prison. Bane helped her escape and now the two are working together to destroy the city. Talia disguised herself as a businesswoman and gained the trust of Wayne to not only get close to him but to get her hands on a nuclear device that they ill-advisedly had in the city. It was supposed to offer an opportunity for like clean energy. So she detonates this nuclear device, this bomb, dies, and then Batman sacrifices himself for the city. Or at least we think he does. But unbeknownst to everyone, Trixie boy he fixes the autopilot on the bat jet thing and ejects before the bomb goes off and despite the fact that a robin sequel would have been awesome with joseph gordon levitt in the lead we only get to see the moral and upright cop get the keys to the bat cave at the end of the movie Yes, definitely would have had a hard time with this one out of context. It's actually a really sophisticated superhero story. Deep conversations about corruption and greed and a terrifying version of the Good Places trolley story with Bane in the lead. I've always been a bigger fan of DC Comics than Marvel. Typically, I like Marvel at the movies, but to actually read the comics, I love the DC Comics. I got really into Nightwing for a while. It follows kind of a, a Robin-esque character, Dick Grayson, um, that works with Batman. So I got, I really like the storytelling in DC comics. Uh, And Nolan absolutely gets the tone right. He gets the gritty atmosphere and the moral ambiguity of Batman just perfectly. I I could do without Bale's stupid voice when he's in the uniform, but I guess he had to do something to disguise himself a little better. I mean, it's better than Clark Kent's glasses that if, if you couldn't tell it was Clark Kent, you know... Something's wrong with you. But overall, the movie holds up fairly well, mostly because of Tom Hardy. And I did really appreciate the reemergence of Killian Murphy as the scarecrow. He was also in the movie. I forgot to mention that. Also in Inception. But on to the important question of the day Would I have survived in Gotham? Perhaps. The first time Bane's voice would come over any speakers, There's every likelihood I would have just climbed under my bed and hidden with some barricades and stealth behavior. I could say it's plausible that my home would have been avoided by the mobs of criminals released back into the wild. But if we're being honest with one another, and I I like to think we're, we're as honest as we can be with one another on this podcast, I would be hiding in shame. The crime was allowed to thrive because good people either made really bad decisions or chose silence over what was right. I really like Gordon Levitt's role in this, the everyman, no superpowers, no magical talents, no crazy technology that he has in his back pocket, just a man standing up for what is right, standing up when even his superiors are trying to knock him down, standing up when he's surrounded by danger, willing to walk into the mansion of a millionaire and call him out on his cowardice. It takes good people doing what's right to make change, not vigilantes, but active participating citizenry. So, yes, I do think I would have been hiding. Yes, maybe I would have survived, but I I would have felt horrible about myself at the end. There, there's the honest answer. Now, would the characters have actually survived this? Let's let's talk about the Batman. He should be dead, and I know he has a fancy suit, but he's old, and he's slow, and Bane literally breaks his back, and yet in a matter of days, not only does his back miraculously heal, but he climbs out of a death prison, makes his way back to Gotham, this death prison is not in the United States, makes his way back to Gotham and starts the fight all over again. He also ejects himself from a jet close to a nuclear explosion. The Batman and Bruce Wayne, both, because they are the same person, spoiler, should not be dead. I had mixed feelings at first as to whether or not they should have killed him. Landed on, it didn't matter. He would have become a martyr either way, a pseudo-villain martyr who taught the city of Gotham that it's okay to get dressed up and beat people up without consequences, but I, I don't think it would have mattered if he had lived or died. The message was kind of the same. I would like to know the population of Gotham before the brouhaha. The villains of Gotham are kind of a special breed of bad guy. I really think they would have gone like house to house, killing everyone. I know that sounds harsh, but sometimes I think storytelling is too clean. <sighs> but not enough people die. Let's talk about Twilight Breaking Dawn someday. Okay, does that sound like a good time? Should we do a Twilight rewatch on here? I think maybe we should. I know. I'm just going to throw that out there as maybe a possibility. A few interesting tidbits about the movie Tom Hardy standing at 5 foot 9 had to wear 3-inch heel-, heel lifts to make his character Bane appear as tall or taller than co-stars Christian Bale, Morgan Freeman and Sir Michael Caine. According to costume designer Linda Hemming, she took 2 years to design Bane's coat, just his coat alone. Man, these are I mean these are artists. It's just beautiful what they do. It was inspired by a Swedish army jacket and a French Revolution frock coat to make Bane look equal parts dictator and revolutionary. Like an amalgam of all sorts of bits and pieces he cobbled together as he passed through some very remote places. That's a quote. I think that's that's very cool. I love that attention to detail and how they use costuming and set and even the effects to a certain extent uh, to really create some wonderful character development. In the football stadium sequence, the cast and extras are all wearing heavy winter clothing, though the scenes were shot during a massive heat wave across the East Coast during the summer of 2011. And of course, that football scene was filmed in Pittsburgh, um, so a big day for, for everybody that lived in Pittsburgh. Each movie from the Dark Knight trilogy is 12 minutes longer than the previous one. Batman Begins that came out in 2005 is two hours and 24 minutes. The Dark Knight that came out in 2008 is two hours and 22 minutes, 32 minutes. I'm sorry. I can do math. And this movie is two hours and 44 minutes. I wonder if that's on purpose. I don't know why it would be on purpose. I don't know what the connection would be, but I think that's a very interesting tidbit. And finally, the facade and some of the interior shots of Wayne Manor were filmed at Walletton Hall, a stately house in Nottingham, England. Just south of Nottingham is a small village called Gotham. But that is it for today. We have one episode left in season seven. I hope you'll tune in for our conversation about 2014's Edge of Tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. Really, It is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review the podcast so that ed- other individuals can find it. You know, other people who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, but just has a lot of fun doing it. That would be totally cool. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome, too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at Gnome and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.